Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name, my name is... Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Michael O'Shea may be a name familiar to you. He's been a writer for Field and Stream, Men's Journal, Outdoor Life. He wrote that amazing article of the vegan that turned into a hunter up in New York State. Mike now can add author to his biography. He just published a book called Rimfire Revolution. And in this podcast, I, essentially a gun dummy, talk to Mike, who is a gun expert, and really ask some essentially some dumb questions around guns and ammunition. And Mike proceeds to step through a novice in terms of what he discovered through the process of writing this book. All right, so I don't know if you know this or not. And I don't know if it's a prerequisite to be a hunter, to be an expert hunter. I guess it is a prerequisite to be an expert hunter. But... I don't think it's a prerequisite to be a hunter to understand guns and calibers. True or false? That is correct. Yeah, I think you gotta you gotta have a basic understanding at least. You want to be expert? Yes, you gotta. But let let me ask this: when we talk about basic understanding of calibers and rifles and stuff like that, I am, and I'll 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 fully confess, I don't know. Like I struggle. Like the difference between a seven millimeter and a seven millimeter 08 and stuff. I don't know the difference. I'll be honest. Right. But I do know I shoot a 270. Yeah. I do know that I walked in South Africa with a 375 Holland Holland Magnum. I yeah. know I want to kill all the buffalo with a 416 Rigby open yeah. sights. And I know my grandfather shot a side by side 457 Wesley Richards. Yeah. 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 But that's it. Like I do, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a gun fundy. I'm not a caliber fundy. I'm not a, oh, I know that you know the, the difference of the hot loads and the different. No, but does it make me any less of a hunter? Yeah, no, no, it doesn't. And I think you you tease that out well, right? Because you need to know the caliber that is effective for the game you're pursuing, and you need to know how to shoot it and that rifle really well. 
once you figure that out, you can hunt the whole world with very few caliber. So you don't need to dive full into the deep waters of gun nerd nerddom. But um, I would argue it makes it more fun the the deeper waters you go into. Um, for some people, I guess. But I also know a lot of people. To your point, that carry a two forty three or a seven mil uh, rem mag for everything, and they do just fine. So not a prerequisite to be a hunter, but uh, interesting nonetheless. I guess I, my argument may be that is I just don't have enough time. Yeah. To get into it. It'll be another thing that my wife is like, what? What are you doing now? Oh, yeah. shit. Another thing? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And it does take over. It's funny. Like, I, like my background, I was a writer and a editor, and most of my work was in Field and Stream magazine. And I was really eaten up with bow hunting. I still am. I primarily hunt, spend more time hunting with a bow than I do rifles. But I started getting into shooting and precision shooting. And you can almost see if you do like the author bio on Field and Stream, like you could plot like when it takes over because all my pitches and everything I wrote was about rimfire rifles for like a year, you know? And uh, so it's a, it's quicksand, man. And it is a time suck. And I know you have little kids. I have little kids. Uh, you gotta, you gotta pick your poison, you know? Favorite caliber? You have one? Ooh, that's tough to say. Um, Given the thing that you were buried in for the last year and a half. Yeah, twenty-two long rifle in a big way. Um, that's, yeah, I, I went deep into that. Um, but I also really like, like for small game hunting, the 17s, you know, and just rimfire. Mm. Um, for deer hunting, honestly, like I probably killed more stuff with a three oh eight than anything. Um, and I... I got deep into, I kind of skipped 6.5 Creedmoor and got into 6 millimeter Creedmoor, which is really kind of like a 243 Magnum. And I get a couple of those and I, I play with those a lot. But um, my 22 long rifle has probably consumed more of my life than, uh, than, than anything. Well, before we move on, because uh, I tend to do this every single time, just get stuck into conversation, don't introduce anyone I'm speaking to. And people are like, I get DMs all the time. Hey, just introduce the guy first because we have no idea who you're talking to. Well, who read is the this narrative. Guy? Who's the narrative? Yeah, who's this guy? Well, Mike, why don't you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me on. My name's Mike Shea. My byline's Michael R. Shea. Um, and I've been an outdoor writer and a gun writer for a while. Um, I was associated a long time with Field and Stream, but I wrote a lot of stuff for Men's Journal and um, uh, USA Today, Outdoor Life. Uh, just a couple uh, all over the place there um the last year i worked on a book i put together a book during these weird times of ours i kind of just knuckled down and wrote about what i liked and it came out a book on rimfire rifles uh rimfire revolution uh which gun digest just put out it came out a couple weeks ago um and so yeah that's been that's been great and i do have a real job too i work for black rifle coffee um, those guys are spinning up a outdoor project, Free Range American, and they needed an outdoor editor. And I knew a guy who knew a guy, and so I've been doing that for about a year now. So fantastic! Yeah. Is uh, yeah. Trevor Thompson tied in with that? Oh yeah, yeah, I know Trevor real well. He, um, I like to tell people my food writer is a Navy SEAL. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, Trevor. I hope he's listening. Yeah, good, good well, dude. He's, he's he's an amazing dude, but he's just like this. He's like this enigma, right? He's just this little dude. You're like Navy SEAL, one little dude. 
two foodie, three is you know coffee snob, four ultra fitness kind of guy, yeah. Yeah. philosophical. It's like, geez, Trevor Thompson, come on, man. Yeah, so I probably of like all the the kind of guys associated with the company who you'd know, I probably have talked and texted with Trevor more than any of them. Like he writes uh, fairly regular food stuff for me, and just just a great dude. Never met him in person. Everything no, you have remote. not. Yep, still have not met him in person. But I'm going to Utah in a week or two, so I hope to fix that. But uh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, he's a good That's dude. That's crazy. So again, I'm going to, I'm going to lead my ignorance out onto the podcast. Two, two and 17 are the only rimfire rifles period, right? No. So, um, so they're, they're kind of, yeah, it, those are, those are the only bullets that are kind of widely produced, right? So there's like four big ones. There's okay. 22 long rifle. Okay. And then there's 17 Mach 2 or 17 okay. HM2, which is a 22 long rifle necked down to a 17. Okay. Uh, they call it like the Mighty Mouse. It's the smallest of any kind of gunpowder-driven cartridges. Uh, that's, that's widely produced. Um, that's the thing about guns and calibers is ever it's so nuanced it's uh i say widely produced because there are stuff that guys have made that is is smaller but that's kind of a main sure, one sure. um then there's the 22 magnum which is a you know you're familiar with that wmr yep. and then there's a neck down version of that the 17 hmr um okay but, but that's those uh, that's still a 22 and a 17 Correct for bullets. Yep. Okay. But there is um there's a five millimeter. I got some of it kicking around somewhere a here. Five millimeter. Um yeah, it's uh uh Remington made it for a while. It's it's really there I don't think anybody makes rifles in it now. Agula still produces the ammunition. Um but the the cool thing about rimfire is like that's current state right now. So so you're correct, current state, really it's twenty-two and seventeens and a couple of random oddballs like the five millimeter. But historically, up until really like the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, all ammunition was rimfire. So like the gun that won the West, that was the the Henry Flat forty four. Um it was a it was basically like almost like a 44 magnum you could imagine but with a with a rim fire and then when they moved into in like the turn of the century got into smokeless powders semi smokeless powders and then smokeless powders what they found was the 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 expansion of gases was so rapid and so combustible that it the the rim fire case the all brass case couldn't hold those pressures so that's where we started to see the the development of belted cases and center fire priming because it could basically that center fire case could handle more pressure um but when you think historically about cartridges uh you know there were rim fires as big as like 505s you know um like hammer hammer rim fire cartridges wow yeah so again i'm so half of the stuff you just said just went like five miles over my head so I'm going to try and dumb this down for those that are listening that are as dumb as I am when it comes to a gun and bullets. Why would there be a difference? Like, why is 
the two to a rimfire cartridge versus a centerfire cartridge? Like, why do we need a rimfire cartridge? Why is there a rimfire cartridge? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. So, um, I think a lot of it kind of comes out of history. Like, rimfire is it's been around forever, and it's very easy to produce and lower cost to produce. So, it's a way to make a lot of ammunition at a large scale and get it out there. We also have this shooting sort of lineage, if you will, right up to mm-hmm. the Olympics where they shoot 22 long rifle yep. that um, has just been, been going forever. Uh, it, it's always, I think the 22 is always going to be there. I think you get into questions of like, um, well, let me, let me back up. Like there are lots of, use cases right where you are small game hunting or target shooting or indoor shooting where you don't need the the speed or the or the um, horsepower if you will of of center fire and so i think there's always kind of a need there but like what, what i was starting to say was when you get into like the difference between the 17 hmr and the 22 magnum or the 22 long rifle versus the 17 mach 2 that's where you get kind of into the the gun nerd stuff. So can you can you reload? No. Rimfire? Well, so then I said everything's nuanced. Typically, no, you cannot reload rimfire. Most people okay. don't do it. But just this or this year, and I think it was January, they started releasing um, copper solid twenty twos right up to fifty grains. And there are some companies selling primed rimfire brass. And so there's a company that has uh, reloading dies, cutting edge, and they're getting into it. But that's really the, the, like, the bleeding edge of the rimfire world right now. Guys are figuring out, and this is kind of what drew me into it, that with a 22 at 200 yards, you're doing all the same long-range precision shooting muscles, uh, skills that you would use with, say, like a 308 at 600 or 800 yards. So like I'm unfortunately here in New York state, rural New York state, but nevertheless, New York, and it's hard to find a place to shoot a thousand yards. It's hard to uh, find a place. It's not hard, but I have to drive to find a place to shoot 400 yards. Well, I just did a PRS match in Pennsylvania that a buddy put together and I had a six millimeter Creedmoor and we had targets out to, I think it was like 585 and different barricades. and. I don't want to be like dismissive and say it was boring, but even at 585 yards with a modern center fire caliber, um, it was it was just easy. Like the mm-hmm. wind was ripping. Like the the the, the tool is so effective. Mm-hmm. Whereas I can take a a 22 and go to 100 yards and I'll shoot at a target the size of a quarter and try to try to ding that, and all of a sudden now we have a game. Now it's right. spicy, you know, right. and and it so it. It opens up a lot more opportunity, I think, when talking about use case, when you go to these smaller rounds um, and, you know, they're, they're hell on squirrels and, and sure, rabbits sure. and there's a lot of hunting use cases as well. That's interesting. So um, one additional question, I'm sure I'm going to have lots, but um, why are higher calibers not room fire? You've, you've mentioned pressure a couple of times. Yeah. So. Let me let me get some props. Well, this is an audio 
uh, audio medium, Mike. Oh, so. it's audio? Oh, man. Here, I'm digging for uh, stuff on my desk. So, um, <laughs> so you'll have to describe it. Yeah. So, okay. So, if you imagine everybody listening to your podcast understands. The three people. Three people. Yep. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, guys. Hi, mom. Yeah. yeah um, exactly. <laughs> so, everybody's held a bullet and knows a case in the primer and the center primer. The brass of that case is is heavy duty and of a certain thickness, uniform to caliber and whatnot. The when you hit the primer and it makes it it combusts the gunpowder, that's creating pressure. Okay. Pressure in that round of expanding gases is pushing your bullet down the barrel, right? right. Like we, right. we all understand that. So the I'm holding in my hand right here a spent case of a 300 WSM uh, short okay. mag. So, um, uh, not a short mag, a WSM. The um, the pressure generated in this inch, inch and a half powder column in this shell is great. You know, it's a lot of pressure to really, a lot of energy to send that bullet down the barrel. If I were to um, take brass of a ductility that like, soft enough so that the striker of the gun can punch through that brass to ignite the powder in the rim if i were to make a, bra a rim fire case that big that uh explosion would be so great it would likely blow out the back of that case the the, the thickness of the brass needed to contain the explosion doesn't line up with the thinness of the brass needed to puncture the primer. Makes so sense. what you have in a center fire case is you have thick, heavy brass and this contained, lighter, easier to strike primer in the center of it. Um, mm. So did that did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you just don't have you essentially don't have that little middle primer, which is that that's causing in the rim fire which actually is the rim the rim itself is the weakness to the bullets in terms of correct. the pressure correct yeah yeah and like guys who reload will know this because you the primer looks like it's what maybe a quarter of an inch across but then when you knock that primer out and go to reload that hole through the primer through the brass case is very small so it's just a, a very small hole in the back of the brass of the case that that combustion from the primer is traveling through. So there's greater uh, uh, energy holding capacity, if you will, yep. in that yep. that case. So, so yeah, that's a that's exactly answers my questions, man. Um, so my kids. So I obviously growing up on um, them growing up here in Mississippi, nine and seven right now. Um, I'll have to tell a very classic dad fail. So. Put them on BBs, you know, um, Red Riders, Iron Sights, blow up balloons, put them on one of our, um, here in the South, we like to have bottle trees, right? Yeah. So what I did was I took all the bottles off the bottle tree and just put balloons all over the bottle tree. And so they would tag the balloons with their Daisy BB guns to learn how to line up the Iron Sights. So, you know, my kids are pretty small kids, so they have to put their head like right up onto the barrel to see the iron sights properly. Right. 
And so they've been shooting for two, three years. And I said, all right, now I'm going to take them and put them onto a 2-2. And so I had a pistol, a Ruger pistol. I have a silencer on the front of it. And I had a red dot scope on the Ruger pistol. And I said, okay, I put the first kid, the oldest one between my legs. And I said, okay, I'm going to hold the, the pistol. You're going to put your hands around the pistol. And I want you to find the red dot. And then I want you to just pull the trigger. It's not going to sound loud. It's got a silencer. It's got all those. And I'm focusing on, I don't know where, I, I guess I was focusing on his hands or whatnot. And what he did was he brought his head all the way oh, yeah. to the back of the 2-2. And he pulled the trigger because that's what he was used to. And all of a sudden, he like whipped his head back. And I saw the, the, uh, the projectile eject. And I thought it hit him in the eye or something like that. And I look at him. And I say, are you okay? And he turns to me and blood just starts gushing out of his nose, just gushing. And I'm just like, oh, crap, man. I've been building up for this moment, this moment of a dad introducing his son to a gun. And then I'm hearing my wife in the background going, be sure you're safe. Be sure because she's totally like freaked out by guns. Yeah, mine is too. They'd get along. And I'm just like, oh, shit, what have I done? He's just pouring blood. He's crying. And then I look over to the seven-year-old. He's, I think, six at the time. And he looks at me and goes, I'm not shooting. I'm not shooting. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, crap. And I said, look, this is what happened. It was dad's fault. You have to shoot this gun again. Both of you have to shoot. You have to get over it. This was dad's problem. Massive dad fail. Um, but since I, um, I, uh, I don't have much tradition in um, my family when it comes to hunting. My father and my grandfather were huge hunters in Africa. I've got a 270 Seiko of my grandfather's here, but that's it. Like, I don't have anything else. Like, I don't have, like, I don't have anything else. So I need to, I thought about how do I build traditions with my kids. Yeah. And so I wanted to get a 2-2. Yeah. But I didn't want any, like, normal 2-2. Like, I was like, if I'm going to start a tradition, I want this gun to be able to pass down to my kids and their grandkids and their grandkids. Yeah. So I, I'm sure, and you may, and the reason I'm saying all this is because I want, I'm leading you into a, what you know what the book really has is that I bought um, Leo a Volquartsen. Oh, nice! Yeah, very nice. With a Magpul stock that can grow with him, and we've got the silencer on the front, red dot scope, and the thing is just like I shot one. I shot them at Winterstrong at, with Soronex, and it was like. As you said, 200 yards, we were pinging steel with it. Yeah. I was like, this is crazy. I, I, didn't, I never expected a 2-2 to do something like this. So in your book, do you go, did you go through the various like, different types of 2-2s? Like you just went company by company? Yeah, And I just did. said, what are the you know, price points? You know, where, is this a beginner rifle? Is this a not beginner rifle? Yeah, so I I really started at the beginning of like how gunpowder was invented and then walked into modern production precision rifles, you know. Um I don't cover all the companies or all the guns, but I cover the ones who are making serious precision tools. Vokortsen's one of them. There's a chapter on Vokortsen. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I think a, so what has happened, like the title of the book is Rimfire Revolution, and that isn't just like cool alliteration. 
So what happened in the last couple of years, really the last three years, is there's been this renaissance, right? So there are the tactical guys who want to play sniper games and shoot PRS, and they realize they can train on these uh, less expensive to shoot, but full-sized grown-up 22 long rifles. And then this customer demand has happened where, well, if Joe has a really accurate rifle, I want a really accurate rifle. And then so right. the company started competing to make them less expensive. So, so this arms race kind of happened. And while this was going on, this group, uh, National Rifle League, came out. And our National Rifle League had been out. They had started NRL 22, which is a, a PRS-style match you can do at 100 yards. Um, I direct a match here in New York. Wow. My first two, one. Two only? 22 long rifle only. 100 yep. yards maximum distance. 100, 100 yards max. Most of the targets are like two MOA. So that means like two-inch target at 100 yards. But you have wow, to sir. know what you're doing with a 22 to hit something that's two inches. Sometimes it's smaller. So anyway, this, this is all backstory to say like in the last, say, five years, really it's less than that, maybe four or three years. There's been this revolution of all of a sudden, there's all of these new 22s on the market that like Volkortsen is probably been doing it since the 90s. And they're yeah. like an old G in the space, right? Yeah. There are all of these new companies, all of these new rifles, some old companies like Anschutz or Seiko Tika, which you mentioned, who are also competitive because they've always kind of had a certain level of precision. What I wanted to do was take people who were in, are interested in this because they want to shoot long range and they don't have a thousand yards or they want to get a heirloom rifle, like in your case, Yep. like, how do you figure that out? And so like, when I got hooked on this, I was living in like the forums on Sniper's Hide and Rims Fire Central and all the super nerd Facebook groups and everything. And it was, it was great. I liked that. And I, as a writer, had the time to do that, but mm -hmm. I want... Not everybody has that, right? So I wanted to put everything that I learned all and, and flatten that kind of learning curve to get in the space with with one book. So to, to answer your question, yes, there's there's a, a section on rifles and then it goes beyond that into optics and into all of the different pursuits, whether you want to do bench rest or, or Olympic style positional shooting or NRL twenty two, and it kind of walks through um like I said, from the invention of gunpowder right through uh, getting going there. Um, the other thing too, and when you were telling your, your story there, you reminded me like, so I have a five-year-old and he's not yet shooting guns yet because he's just, a, he's a wide open like turbo five-year-old and we're just not putting guns in his hands yet, <laughs> frankly. So, but he's been in the room when I've been shooting and I live in the country and I can slide open my office door and there's a 50 yard rim fire range and I shoot and test guns. And he was down here, this was a year ago, so he's probably four. And he wanted to see something. I was shooting a 22. It was a Savage, um, a great gun, B-22 Precision. And I'm shooting it and he liked it. It was shooting subsonics and he liked the sound of it. And he could see that I was hitting steel and he was seeing it spin. And then he's like, well, what's your deer gun? And I got my deer gun out and I showed him that. And that was really loud. And he's like, well, what are we going to turkey hunt with? That's right, because we were going to go turkey hunting. It was the first yeah, year yeah, I took yeah. him turkey hunting in the blind. And so we were actually shooting a 410. And yep. then we got into the 22. But the 308 
and the shotgun, he was a little, there was a little hesitancy even standing behind it. Cause as we all know, guns are loud, right? Like sure, it's sure. making noise. But when it was all said and done, he said, dad, can we shoot the fun gun again? And I was oh, like, yeah, fun gun. And he pointed to that savage and he's like, I want to, let's shoot that because he wanted to see the steel plate spin. You know, he understood the feedback. It wasn't scary. And, and it's not just kids. Right. So I live in a very, like, I live in New York and I live in the woods, like 20 miles South of a very progressive college town. It's a very liberal town, not a gun friendly space. Let's just put it lightly. Um, the pandemic happened and I have friends who are college professors or organic farmers or whatever, and everything got weird. And all of a sudden, my very progressive friends were like, Mike, I got to learn about guns. Like, the people are coming. We got to learn about guns. And so I had some buddies come down, and I had them shoot, and I put them on a twenty-two, And they got it. You know, they, it, it worked. I, I made the same mistake with these grown-ups that you made because they wanted to shoot a two-two-three. And mm-hmm. like I said, my office is indoors. It's a sliding glass door. I have a big wooden shooting bench and I put the 223 on it and I let him shoot and there's a muzzle brake on the end. And I didn't think about it. We're inside. We're wearing ear protection, of course, but still loud as heck, loud as heck, man. And like they were rattled, like one guy like ran for the door, you know, and I'm <laughs> and in my mind, I'm thinking 223. It's like a mouse gun, you know, it's like a step up from a, a 22. But the noise, the concussion from the muscle muzzle break, like it, it definitely sent them sideways. Um, and so, so, you know, again, like another, another, to answer your first question, I'm still grappling with like another use case for like introduction and training people to. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about that because obviously pandemic, you became a book author. Congratulations. You can officially add that to your bio if you'd like. Yes, thank you. Um, but also it came with all this weirdness, right? It came with this idea and, and weirdness on one end. On the other end, people really coming to grips with, man, maybe hunting isn't that bad, you know? 46% increase in turkey licenses in Wisconsin, 37% increase in licenses in New Jersey. Uh, people trying to figure out, okay, shit, man, there's no, there's no meat in the grocery store anymore. I need to figure out where to get my groceries from. So, you know, let's talk about the 2-2 in that, in that regard and that as an entry weapon as well as a weapon that could actually sustain, you know, you could go out and, as you said, rabbits and squirrels and all sorts of things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's deadly on, on small game, you know, and has been for, you know, whatever it is, 150 years. Um, and it's a, great, it's a great introduction, you know. and um the the thing about the 22 is it can be whatever it needs to be for the shooter at hand the rimfire round like when you're shooting an ar or you're shooting even a nine millimeter subcompact that you may carry and you're trying to introduce someone to rifles there's um uh there's going to be recoil there's going to be sound. There's going to be like all the gun stuff that a new person needs to modulate for, you know, and you come to love it and we all come to love it. And that's part of it. But 
like the the 22 can can kind of be all things to all shooters because it can be a pistol or it can be a rifle. There's no to like very minimal recoil. It's not right. loud. You can get a $5,000 precision 22 rifle that can shoot at, I have a buddy who shot him at 1,200 yards, which is outrageous. No way. Yeah, Come 12, on. 100% it happens. You put a prism on the front of it. Or you can get... No, no, no. Time out, time out, time out. 1,200 yards, the bullet weight is what, 50 grams? 40, 40 grains. 40 grains. 40 it's grains. You got you to read the book. The wind, the wind, the wind would blow that away. The wind would blow that away. Come on. Oh, yeah. Wind has an effect. Um, he had a, a giant piece of steel. I think it was six by six. And did it the did uh, first time three times in a row. Um, but that's, what is he aiming? Like 200 feet above? Yeah. The... Um, I want to, I should, I, I should look in the book. I want to say the time in flight was like 12 seconds, something like that. It was, um, Shit, it was, great. it's outrageous. But basically in those setups, you have a, a prism. It's almost like a periscope that you have to put in front of the optic. So you can get enough reticle adjustment. Um, mm. he did it. It was a hundred and 120 mils roughly. Um, I wrote it. It's, it's, I, I have it. I can look it up. We can That's put it crazy. in show notes or something. But so, so my, my point is that you can have five grand in an extreme 22 to do extreme shit, or you can get one for $179 savage rascal and like safely teach your kid like how to shoot. You know, mm-hmm. and not have mm-hmm. any of those other factors of recoil or sound or or whatnot. Um, Essentially, an all American, you know, for every age class, for every demographic, for every um, you know status level, if you want, is the yeah. two two rifle. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, and in talking about like the pandemic thing, like all of these people who have kind of come to to me because they want to learn how to shoot guns or like I have friends who I introduced to hunting for the first time. Like it seems like the last couple of years, every year I've taken a new adult hunter who's wanted to get into it. The first thing I do in all of that step, every, with every one of those people is I put them on a 22 and I get them shooting because you can teach them the mechanics of like, you know, the basic stuff. Like this is where you put your shoulder. This is how you squeeze a trigger. Don't put your eye that close to the scope. Like, get your head back on the rifle. Keep coming, keep coming. And then they're like, oh, they're surprised they can still see. Because kind of like your kid, they thought they mm-hmm. need to get their eye way up in there. Mm-hmm. And so it's, um, it's a great tool in that, in that regard as well. Um, and I think, like, all the, the, you probably know the number, but it's what, 7, 10 million first-time gun owners. You know, I think it's safe to assume. Most of those gun owners bought pistols, most of them in nine millimeter. Yep. Those, those buyers are going to find out that they, a lot of them are going to find out that they love shooting because for the same reasons we do, because it's awesome and it's fun and it's empowering and it's a difficult skill to do. And there's a real learning curve. You're able to make progress. Like there's a lot of upside to shooting. So all of these new people have their nine millimeter pistols. They're going to go to the range. They're going to do it. They're going to love it. And they're not going to be able to find ammo or they're going to find ammo at 50 bucks a box. And then they're going to say, well, I don't want to stop doing this. So what's next? They're going to 
again, lean into the rimfire stuff, I think, mm-hmm. to to be able to shoot more, more economically, um, and just get get the time in on the trigger. You know, yeah, that's yeah. that's what it does. Absolutely. I want to pivot a little bit. You, you you mentioned, and I know you texted me this over DM, you, you've obviously taken a couple of newbies over the last couple of years hunting. All of them, were any of them complete anti-hunters? Yeah, um, one of them, uh, one of them was like a self-proclaimed vegan, you know? Um, yeah, she got out, um, but they they were kind of, trending that way i guess like they had their own chickens so they were eating eggs from the chickens that that they had but um she really and i think like i think like, i wrote a thing on her i don't know that's a year right ago, that's, last yeah, that's the season, one i reached out to you on yeah yeah exactly exactly you reached out to me then and like she's kind of i think uh like a perfect case for uh almost like communicating with people who don't understand hunting, like in, and not to, I don't say that to like pat myself on the back, but like the way that all came together was kind of perfect because I wasn't really being evangelical about like, Hey, come to hunting. It was never confrontational. Um, like we, our kids went to the same school and I, saw would see her husband would be picking up the kids when i was picking up the kids and he'd be wearing like a sims hat you know and he had fly fishing stickers on his truck and you know we do like the awkward like white guy who don't know each other you know (laughs) like move on and get the kids and whatnot and then eventually uh my son became really good friends with this girl in the in the classroom uh and i'm not going to say their name because they don't you know want to be out there but anyway this this little girl um, uh, and my son became friends and he tackled her in the hallway when we were picking up. And my, uh, my friend, my, now my friend, he's standing there and he's like, whoa, hey. I was like, oh, hey. And so we started talking and he was wearing a Sika hat, a Sika waterfowl hat. And I was like, oh, man, nice shirt. He's like, yeah, man, I noticed whatever. I don't know if he was wearing like a Black Rifle coffee shirt. Or sure, sure. So we got talking. And he said, um, he's like, yeah, we're not hunters. My buddy has a fly fishing store and he carries Sitka, um, but we're big time gardeners and the deer are hammering our yard. And we've thought a lot about it and we just don't know what to do. And if you're a deer hunter, like, let's talk. Can you help? Yeah. Can you help? Right. And so that has, I've been in that situation before. And then usually you show up and it's like a quarter acre plot in a city and you're like, yeah, I can't help you. You know, sorry, sorry, bro. Like, <laughs> uh, coffee's good though. Um, yeah. but I got there and it was, it was 10 or 12 acres, 10 acres. And man, it was primo, like primo whitetail habitat, all brush lot and overgrown orchard, uh, two farms on either side of it. Um, and we went in and scouted through and it just looked like elk trails through the woods, Jeez. like just, and I was like, yeah, I was like, you could, I could take some deer off of here. And they were like, and they were very like, um, they didn't want to like push it on me. They were very like, I don't want to say awkward, but, um, almost like solemn about it. Like, thank you very much. You're doing us a great service. You're going to eat it. Right. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to eat it. And, um. I was going to bow hunt it and I didn't. And then opening day of that gun season, I guess it was two, two, maybe two years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, in a half hour into the first day of deer season, I killed two deer and, um, was pulled them out. They couldn't believe that it happened that fast. And I said, well, you guys were right. Like you have a deer problem like this. And they, they're very smart people. Like before they even talked to me, they knew about deer density and whatnot. Cause they'd researched it, figuring out course, like, what, yeah. what can I do, you know, and we're covered in deer. And so I took the deer to the, my butcher and got it butchered up and got it back. And I called them and I said, Hey, do you want like one of these deer? And they were like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. We'll talk to you later. And then I got a text message like a day or two later. And they're like, yeah, we would, we'd like to try it, you know? And I brought him a deer and gave it to him. And, um, I think like that thing happens when people eat meat for the first time in a long time, eat good meat, you know, they were just energized, jazzed, energized, like, like it was like the text messages were coming in like, Hey, this, thank you so much. How many deer can we get? You know, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, that sort of led to a larger discussion of like, how do we get started? And interestingly enough, um, they're not, uh, native born Americans. And when they moved to America, they thought it was so wild that it was like easy access to guns that they did like all the certifications they could do. So they took like a defensive pistol class and they took a precision rifle class and they got their hunting licenses, never bought a gun, never did anything. It was all just like the novelty of like, oh my God, we can have this stuff. Right. So they already had all their hunting licenses and everything from 10 years ago. Uh, So I, I basically brought the, um, my friend's wife, she's, she's also my friend, but the mom of the, of the two kids, uh, wanted to give it a shot. And she's like a really kind of turbo human. She's like a really successful surgeon. And, you know, she runs, uh, track, does triathlons. Like, I think she's training for an ultra now. You know, like she's like a lot of the hunters I know who are Mm -hmm. like no moss grows on her, you know, Mm -hmm. and when she saw that come together and I think when she saw her kids eat that meat and respond to it and I think it just clicked in her head. And so I took her out, uh, took her here and had her shooting um, a 22, understood the basic safety of it. And then I did something and I wouldn't advise this, but I really, I guess I really trusted them as I, I loaned her a rifle um, and I gave her a, a Bagara and said, um, well, let's go, you know? And I knew she'd be safe because of just her, the way mm-hmm. she is and whatnot, but it felt a little weird, honestly, to be like, mm-hmm. all right, go, go forth. Um, but I, uh, I went, I brought it over that first morning and we sat and we didn't see anything. and then got out of the stand i had to go to work and she had like a week off and she sat by herself uh for like four or five mornings and then finally killed a deer and i wasn't i wasn't there for that but wow um they didn't they didn't even she i mean no experience gutting it no experience with the butcher you know i had given them the my, my friend who cuts deer i gave, gave them their number and uh she knew how to gut it, obviously, because she's a surgeon and can take apart sure. anything. But it was like they were very like 
I, they didn't tell me the day of. They were very kind of like quiet about Spell it. Them about it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it was a big deal, right? And I could tell. And I thought that was good. I think that's the way it it should be a lot of the way, a lot of the time. It's funny how you you talked about you weren't evangelical about pushing hunting on someone. I don't think hunters are evangelical about pushing hunting. It's not it's not in our DNA. It's not something we like, you have to become a hunter. I've yeah. never seen that actually. Yeah, we don't push we don't push um we don't push hunting like we want people we're not looking for converts, right? But I know right. plenty of hunters and I know plenty of friends that when they had that first conversation in the school with the fly fisherman who's a vegan who's like they'd tune them right out. All right, mm -hmm. cool. They go mm -hmm. home and tell their wife, yeah, I met so-and-so's dad. Yeah, they're vegans, man. Oh, all right, move on. Exactly. You know? So it, I guess not, I guess I gave them a chance. I guess mm -hmm. it's kind of the better way to maybe put it, you know? Well, maybe and, it's not evangelical in pushing them to become hunters, but rather, and I think this is the narrative that's changing, is that people like you are more open to having a conversation with someone about it, right? Whether, whether they become a hunter or not, you know, you're open and you're intellectual enough and you have enough acumen to speak intelligently about why you hunt. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's it. And, you know, like I, I'm like a love and tolerance person, which is funny because I spend most of my free time running around trying to shoot stuff. But like when it comes to, putting it out there you know i really try to disengage when it gets when it gets tenuous or it gets like you know dogmatic about vegans are this or vegetarians are that or hunters are this i have zero interest in going down that path and a lot of the people i know who make serious food choices and like while i think veganism is not for me or my family or most of the people I know. I respect people who look at our current like American food consumption, which is just basically like a trash compactor of garbage that we eat as a culture and say, I got to do something different. And so they've already taken action. Like it's, it's, I have, a, I have another friend who this year wants to get into hunting. Same story, maybe more fundamental in the veganism. He's an ultra runner and like a fucking good one. And he is a turbo human being who's very interested in performance and getting better and doing the right thing. And like, if you're thinking that way about the world, you're, of course, you're going to think about the food choices you're making. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. so, so approaching those people of like i understand your choice and i get it i don't want to eat junk food either but this is how i went about it you know and this is why there is a conservation element to it there's a, a financial element to those those dollars there's a real need when you talk about like deer densities or bear densities you know right um and these these guys these these professionals I'm dealing with, uh, they, they get that, you know, I think like, I think so many, so often we hear as like hunters, we hear like vegans and we think like PETA people on the internet giving death threats. And like, I'm sure there are those lunatics and like, fuck those people, you know, I want nothing to do with them. Sure. But, 
that's not any of the vegetarian vegan people I've met in my life. You know, they're all like really high performing, reasonable people who just want to disconnect from the shit show that is the current kind of American diet. And so, um, giving them, giving them a break and like approaching them with like, uh, yeah, okay, cool. That's not my choice. Um, this is what I do, you know, and then hopefully they garden and hopefully the deer hammer their garden and then I get a new spot to hunt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the alternative motive comes out. Yeah. 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 Well, Mike, um, let's, uh, let's wrap this up and tell people where can they find your book? Yeah, man. Room fire revolution. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, it's uh it's at Amazon like where where we all buy books it's at uh gundigeststore.com uh, really anywhere it's going to be in Barnes and Noble um yeah anywhere anywhere books are sold as they say well outstanding i can't wait um to to get my hands on it and learn a little bit more take this this gun dummy and make him a little bit more proficient in in gun speak you got to you got to full course and so you're halfway there man uh, that, that let's be honest that's me pretending right <laughs> Mike, a pleasure, man. Thank you. And uh, good luck. Eh? I, uh, I, I can't wait for to read the book. And obviously, this, you know, you're a book author now. That means number two must be percolating in the background somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I got to figure that one out. Try, try to get through this first uh, one, getting it out in the world first. Absolutely. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, Do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.